Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the teaching that you've done through the men uh, over the centuries who've written in this book we call the Bible, authored by you but transferred to us through faithful men. And I thank you, Father, for that transfer, that you not only presented it to them, but gave them the insight and the memory to record it perfectly. Gave others the skill, the ability, and opportunity to preserve it perfectly. And you bring it to us now, not that I will teach it perfectly, far from it, Father, but that the Spirit in each of us will do that instead. And so, Father, we acknowledge it, we submit to it. We acknowledge, Father, that it is written for our benefit. And we acknowledge, Father, that it is our responsibility to obey it. So, Father, not only give us the power to understand the the skill to make sense of it, but also, Father, the strength to keep it, not just individually, but corporately. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Matthew 18. Here's where we are, friends. We're in the middle of a scene with Jesus and the 12 apostles in which, because of pride and, and selfishness, these 12 men became stumbling blocks for some other disciple. Do you remember Jesus had heard from John about some encounter that the 12 had had with some nameless disciple who had been outcasting demons in the name of Jesus? And because that man was not part of the inner group of 12, those apostles assumed that he was doing something wrong. And so they told Jesus they tried to stop him in what he was doing. And then Jesus responded with a rebuke. And he said to them, whoever this guy was, he was engaged in work that was consistent with a common mission. Or as Jesus put it, whoever is for you, that is, whoever is seeking to glorify Christ and serving the kingdom in the same heart that you are, well, then that person, he says, is on your side. Whoever's for you is not against you. And then he pivoted from there. At the end of last week, we moved from that scene to a teaching that Jesus embarks on as a result of what they did, in which he starts talking about stumbling blocks. And he charged his disciples with essentially being stumbling blocks for that guy, whoever he was. They were declaring to this man that he should not do what God had actually asked him to do, apparently, and they just were unaware of the fact that Jesus was capable of working with men beyond the twelve. And you remember how he talked about stumbling blocks? Jesus said, woe to any of his followers who would become a stumbling block to another believer. And and he spoke in hyperbola saying, it would be preferable to drown or to sever limbs from your body than it is to be a stumbling block to other believers, which of course is not meant literally, but his point is that's how seriously he takes this. And so that's how seriously we ought to take it. I imagine the apostles were pretty shocked to hear that they they had done something in that way, right? They were thinking they were doing the right thing. I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. I'm assuming that they were trying to protect Jesus' honor and to preserve good order in the church. I mean, they had some reason for what they were doing. But in reality, they were just protecting their own selfish interests. It was about us versus him, the 12 in our special role, and this guy trying to do what only we should be doing. We've seen that, I'm sure, many times in the church, people protecting their little kingdom within the body. All right, so from there, Jesus begins to teach them on how they should have reacted in that moment. And it started with the parable of the 99 sheep. That's where we ended last week. That is, Jesus using that parable of how the father sees a wandering sheep. Now, there are a couple of times in the Gospels where Jesus teaches about 99 sheep. One of them in Luke 15 is directed at evangelism. This is a second example, not the same moment, Here, Jesus is teaching about stumbling blocks and believers, not about unbelievers. So this is not a, how do you go find the lost sheep, as in, how do you go save somebody? 
This is in the context of how do you restore a wandering believer who's not obeying Christ and needs to be brought back into obedience. That was the issue. And these men had come upon a man they thought was doing the wrong thing, sinning by what he was doing, and they were wrong in their assessment of him, but they were equally wrong in their response to him. That is, even if you assume he was doing something wrong, what should you do about it? And what they did was they tried to shut him down. They tried to stop him from serving Christ. And what Jesus has got to teach these guys is, first of all, you've got to get your facts right. He wasn't doing anything wrong. But secondly, you need to respond to sin in a wholly different way. You need to respond in the way that a shepherd would respond to a lost sheep. And as we saw last week, what does a shepherd do when a sheep wanders away? Well, first of all, they care enough about that sheep to go deal with it. They aren't content to just have 99. They want all of their sheep. And then secondly, when he goes looking and he finds that lost sheep, he doesn't pull out a rod and start beating the sheep on the head and shoulders and saying, get back, you lazy, dumb sheep, right? He gently leads it back. Neither does he excommunicate it from the fold because the sheep dared to leave in the first place, right? These are attitudes that need to be adjusted to match the heart of the father because Jesus says the father rejoices at the return of that lost sheep. So these disciples needed to be corrected on the facts of that matter, but more importantly, they needed to be given a vision for how you deal with that kind of situation when it occurs in the body. And that leads into the next section of teaching, a teaching, a section that I'm confident many of us have heard, or maybe at the very least we've heard others talking about it, because it, it is a commonly used passage or commonly referred to passage. But now I hope as we go into it today, you have a better sense of why it was taught in the first place. This is about how to match your heart to the heart of the Father when it comes to restoring a wandering, wayward sheep in the body of Christ. Let's go to Matthew 18, verse 15. Jesus said, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every act may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. All right, so what Jesus gives us here is a patient, loving, gentle approach to leading that wayward sheep, so to speak, back into the fold, back into fellowship, back into obedience. Now, as I mentioned, this passage is often quoted or or talked about. I would imagine if I asked for a show of hands here, I'd see a lot of hands go up if I said, are you familiar with this? Or have you heard people referring to this before? But perhaps because it's so familiar and often misused in the way I've seen it practiced, I think we need to take time to look at it more carefully. This is what we want to look at today. And as I said, it just comes on us now because this is where we are in the text. Now, before we look at all the details that Jesus lays out here, all the steps, I want to make an overview comment about what this passage is intended to do in the body. It is not a kind of break glass in emergency set of processes or response to some terrible thing that's happening. It's not like, you know, two people show up with keys and turn them at the same time and a big box opens up and they take out the manual and everybody starts flipping through it like, oh my gosh, how do we deal with this? Uh, You know, that's how it's often perceived, right? Something so egregious, so terrible, we just stop all of life until we deal with this one person's problem and then all of a sudden we have this big brouhaha about it and we go through all the steps of Matthew 18. 
Have you ever seen a church kind of think like that or people work in that way? But now if you look at the context, that's not the issue at all, right? How often, let me ask you this, how often do you think, if you looked around in the body, how often do you think you might find a believer who's sinning? Oh, I don't know, you know, once in a while maybe? (laughs) Jesus said, this is the process when a brother or of course a sister is also in view, when a brother or a sister sins. So how often do you think this actually should be happening? I mean, potentially all the time, but that's why it's so gentle. That's why it's so careful. That's why it's largely private. Because the intent here is not to make this some end-of-the-world crisis moment that becomes social media fodder. It's meant to be something personal and simple and corrective and helpful. And so we all have a tendency to stray. We all suffer the same temptations. We all will stray from time to time. So when that happens, and this is not, by the way, meant to be, I think, just every little tiny thing anyone does ever, we invoke this. That's a bit of busybodiness at that point. I think it's more in the sense of sustained disobedience. A sheep that doesn't just take a moment away and come back. We're talking about someone who's wandered off. That's where this comes in. And the process, when we sense that about someone, we, when, when the Lord has made it clear to us that there is this concern in someone else's life, and we can't, we can't really avoid it, we can't ignore it, then it starts in the most obvious of ways, we go to that person, he says. We go to him. Maybe, let me just give you some examples. Maybe you see somebody doing something out of character, and it's, it concerns you that maybe they've taken a left turn, and they're doing They're headed a a bad way. Or they're coming under some corrupting influence and you can see the effect. Maybe they have uh, started to listen to false teaching. Um, Maybe uh, they are harboring bitterness or unforgiveness towards someone and it's coming out of them in a continual way. Uh, Maybe you see them becoming haughty or arrogant. Um, Maybe they're just lax. They're just lax. They're not showing up at church anymore. They're not engaged in the small group anymore. It's been a while since you've seen them. You check in on them. You realize this person is going somewhere that if they go on that road much further, it's not good. It's not what Jesus wants for them. All right, so it's something that's put you in a position to know that there's an issue. And not because you went looking for it. Not because you're inspecting everybody's life, right? Just in the by and by. And the Bible says when you see that, you have an obligation to deal with it. I think that's inherently part of what he's saying here. This is not an option. He didn't say, and I, I like the way the, the text is written here. I want you to go back and look at it with me in chapter 18, verse 15. You notice how it begins. He does not say, if your brother sins, consider going to see him. If your brother sins, pray and ask the Lord if he wants you to go see him. If your brother sins, give some thought to whether or not you should go see No. <laughs> if your brother sins, Go. Now, the reason I think it's said in those ways is, again, not to create a church of busybodies, but to make sure that we don't think it's someone else's problem every time. That we have a sort of ready excuse to say to someone, well, someone ought to talk to that person. Well, guess who that someone needs to be? Because if the Lord in his providence and omniscience put you in a position to know about it, then it presupposes he wanted you to do something about it. That's why he brought it to your attention. You're the person, potentially. So go. And the next step is equally important. Not only should we have the impetus to go, but the Bible says, Jesus says, we go in private. We go in private. Now, what that rule means, and I think it's key because if the the process doesn't start this way, it's going to go sideways very quickly. Going in private means you go to that person before you go to any other living human being. (laughs) Period. 
All right? You talk directly to that person about what you are concerned about, and if you go to anyone else before you go to them, it is, by definition, gossip. Don't share your concern with me. Don't share it with another elder. Don't share it with your small group leader. Don't put it on a prayer chain. Don't put it on social media. Don't talk to anyone about it. Go to that person directly. And that rule is so important that if you violate it, even in, good, in a kind of good-intentioned way, you make the rest of the process 10 times harder and the likelihood of success much lower. There is simply no reason to tell anyone else until you've talked to that one person. You go talk to them in private, and I would argue as soon as you can, in gentleness, in patience, with a loving spirit, uh, speak to them honestly about your concern, hear them out as they respond in whatever defense or explanation they might want to offer you. You may find yourself crying with them. You may find yourself laughing with them. You may find that you're hugging them, praying for them. Just be Jesus to them, just like you would expect someone to do for you. You're looking for lost sheep here. You're not beating them around the head with a rod. The idea is to win them. And personal, in private, one-on-one discourse is the best way, and I would argue in most cases the only way, that you should engage with somebody who's wandering. All right? And I would also say it's the most likely to succeed. It's much harder. Think about this. How much harder is it for someone to confess in response to your concern, to come to repentance in the moment? How much harder is that if it's become public? And if you're doing it in a public way, if they feel like you're the fifth person they've talked to and not the first, at that point, they're angry. They're disappointed. Their heart gets hardened. They get defensive. You've, You've just made everything harder for them. You've actually made it harder for them to do the right thing. But when they realize you've talked to no one but them and you came out of concern, at least now you have a fighting chance that their pride won't keep them from doing the right thing. And when you meet with them, let me remind you, what is the point of that meeting? That point is to win them back to Christ, not to win them to yourself. And what do I mean by that? The goal is to win them to doing what Christ wants, not to win them to doing what you want. You're not trying to win an argument. You're not trying to force them into a corner so that You've debated them to the point where now they have no choice but to agree with you or something. It's not your place to make demands. You don't have the recipe for restitution. You're not gonna give them the roadmap for how they change their lives. Leave that to Jesus. All you're trying to do is get them to a point where they're willing to listen to him again, where they understand that what you're concerned about, they should be concerned about. And at that point, leave it with them to deal with it. All right, this, the way I like to put it is this. It's not an intervention, it's an invitation. An invitation to do the right thing. So your goal is to encourage them back into the flock, not to exercise personal authority over them or control over them. And God forbid you should ever make any kind of threat. You know, if you don't do this, I'm gonna have to tell somebody. I mean, you might as well not go in the first place if you're gonna bring that kind of a response. I mean, we all know. Can you put yourself in the position of the person being confronted and hear those words coming at you? What would you do with that, right? We, we know how people respond to that. Now, I'm gonna add one other little caveat here. This is As Paul would say, I guess, in his writing, I say this myself and not from the Lord, uh, but I believe it's intended, at least to a degree. We live in an age in which conversations can happen in a lot of novel ways, right? Uh, Today, uh, you know, we communicate in ways that were never imagined in Jesus's day. And in the way he speaks here, he says, go. I think in-person communication is implied. That is, it, it, it 
seems to me that what he's asking of us to do is to be personally invested in that person's concerns and their, in their life in such a way that they recognize we're not there just to hurt them or to expose them, we're there to help them. And in-person communication conveys that degree of sincerity and authenticity in a way that others, other forms of communication just can't do. So we ought to be thinking first and foremost about meeting with them in person, and you understand, by the way, that when you meet with someone in person, body language is a part of the conversation, and you say something, and then you see in their face, oh, you're not taking what I said correctly, let me, let me, let me explain. You can do that when you're looking at someone. You can't do that through a text, right? So today, email has replaced written letters, texting has replaced phone calls, social media has replaced gatherings of one kind or another, and those modern methods of communicating, and they're not wrong, I mean, we all use them, they're fine, they have their place now, they're convenient, certainly, But I don't think, and here again, it's my opinion, but I don't think they're compatible with the intent of Matthew 18, 15. I I think they they are an easy out. Uh, They convey their own kind of message, in fact. Uh, You're communicating to that person that I want you to know my opinion, but at the same time, I don't really care enough about you to invest any time in a face-to-face conversation. Or I don't want to expose myself to your response. I don't want to have to put myself on the line here. I'm just going to lob this grenade over the wall and then let you deal with it. You ever had someone send you a text or an email like that? And what do you feel about that? You know, hey dude, what's up? Just thought you'd like to know. Think that sin thing you got is not right, man. LOLs, happy smiley face crying, thumbs down. (laughs) Come on. Come on. And I will tell you from experience, texting and email often make a situation far worse than helpful because. We all tend to lower our guard a little bit when we move into those other less personal ways of communicating, right? Who has not had that experience of sending a text or an email and then going, shouldn't have sent that? Or as I sometimes do, I'll go back and read old emails I've sent a, you know, some period of time ago and I'm thinking, what idiot wrote that email? And you just think, wow, what was I thinking at the time? It's that impersonal nature of texting and emailing that lets us say things in ways we would never dream of saying if we had to actually stare the person in the face and say it. Well, then don't take the risk, you know? Have you ever reread your own text or email and had that same sinking feeling? Well, you get it, right? It's, it's, it's inevitable that we'll say something dumb. You may say something dumb in person, too, but you have an immediate opportunity to correct it. You don't get that with uh, those other methods. So I have a simple rule of thumb. I try to follow this. That is, I never deliver bad news in writing. I only deliver it in face-to-face meetings. So, you know, praise in email, critique face-to-face. And when I've forgotten this rule, and I have, of course, on on occasion, and I've delivered some complaint by email or whatever, I almost always regret it deeply. You never get another chance to fix that. You know, sometimes it can be a serious problem. So I'm thinking, and I believe I'm honestly correct in this, when Jesus says go, he means face-to-face. Now, I will give you options, uh, or, or acknowledge, rather, that there are times when it's not possible. You've got a long-distance relationship, but you know them well enough that you can deal with them through text or email and you can still convey something sincerely. You know the person, you know what will work and what won't. I'm not making this a biblical rule. I'm just telling you that if you can go to them face-to-face, that's probably the best solution. And when you go face-to-face, if they disagree with your concerns, be prepared to bring scripture. Have some biblical basis for your concern. Because honestly, if you can't point to something in the Bible to back your concerns up, maybe your concerns are wrong. And sometimes in the course of your discussions, you may discover your information was inaccurate. Maybe they aren't doing what you thought, or maybe there's some reasonable explanation. And as you get through the conversation, hey, that's a win. That's a good outcome. 
You know, no problem, no, no harm, no foul. I'm glad we had this conversation, right? You know, if that actually happens, you'll be really thankful you didn't talk to anybody else before you talk to them. You'll be glad you didn't become the source of lies or slander. Now, on the other hand, maybe what you have to show is correct and they see it themselves. They respond in humility and they respond in repentance. And Jesus says, if that happens, you have won your brother. The word won in Greek, it, it literally means gained. You've gained back your brother. It's literally the sheep that was away from the flock is walking back. That's all you were there to do. Case closed. Game over. No need to talk about it again. No need to tell anyone, oh, by the way, I was able to help this. No, just it's over. It's over. Now, obviously, that's a best case outcome. That's what you're hoping for. That's why this whole thing happened. But it won't always happen that way, right? So in other cases, you won't reach agreement on the matter. What do you do then? Well, let me suggest to you that the, the, the intent in this passage, the way it plays out, I think makes clear that we're supposed to be doing this in a loving way with the best interest of the other person at heart, hoping for a good result. That's our heart, right? It's not about catching someone. It's not about penalizing someone. It's about helping someone. So what's the right thing to do in the face of a disagreement in the moment? Well, let me tell you about human nature from what I've learned of it. People sometimes need time. You know, it's sometimes it takes a while to think through what someone has said, to get past the emotional moment, because sometimes in the beginning of that, you're, you're emotional, you're defensive. Well, let them have that time. Say, okay, I just want you to know, think about it. Walk away, be content with that. Don't make any other move. Don't tell anybody else. Don't prejudge. Just wait. And when I say wait, I mean, friends, it could be weeks. It could be months. You know, you don't necessarily have a timetable on this thing. But what you should say to yourself is, I'm not going to give them a 24-hour notice and then lower the hammer. Right? That's not your job and not my job. So the goal in this should be to go into that matter in an open-hearted way, speak softly, helpfully, and lovingly, depart as friends, and remain patient. And give time for the Holy Spirit to work in their heart off of what you've said. And look at what might come from that over time. You might find that person come up to you in a, a month or later and say, you know, Steve, I've been thinking about what you said. And then you have a good conversation and you thank the Lord for having worked in their heart. So don't demand instant repentance. That's really not a practical expectation. And you need to give some time. Now, the process in this way, you see, is placing love for that person and the hope of restoration above all else. The goal, look, another way to say it is, if you get them back in the flock one way or another, it doesn't matter how long it took or what, you had, you know, what kind of patience you had to show to get there. At the end, it's, it's a good result. You're happy it happened. You don't need to have it happen on a timetable, necessarily. And I tend to think or tend to wonder how many believers over the centuries would have been restored into a body if someone had just had a personal private conversation with them with loving intent and then giving them some time. I wonder how many people could have been rescued under those circumstances but never had the chance. So to approach misbehaving believers in any other way at the outset, that is to go public when you should have been private, to ignore it when you should have talked to them, to talk to them in a way that is pushy or rude, in, in all of those things, friends, that is potentially sin on our part. We're just adding insult to injury. Now, what if you don't reach agreement and what if they don't make any attempt to change? What if it becomes clear at some point that things aren't making any progress? What do you do then? Well, Jesus says there are more steps and um, it begins with taking more believers with you. Two or more, he says. And he says you go with this small team to confirm the matter. And what he means by confirm is not to confirm the facts. What he means is to confirm the truth of it in their heart. And he, he pulls out from the law, Deuteronomy 19.15, in which you see 
the law saying that a single witness is not sufficient to bring a charge against someone in a matter of law. You need two or more witnesses. And the idea of this is self-explanatory, right? It's easy for anyone to make a false accusation against anybody else. One person can, can make up anything anytime. And if a single accusation was enough to convict a person, then friends, we would all become victims of slander sooner or later. It's, it's just too easy. So when you have two or three or more independent witnesses coming with the same story and the same concern for somebody, it reduces the likelihood that it's false accusations and it also increases the likelihood that the person's gonna listen. Because when you stand opposed to one person, you can find something to cling to to tell yourself that your stance is reasonable. But when you have two or three credible, caring Christian brothers or sisters bringing the same story in a unified front, You become increasingly foolish. You look increasingly unreasonable to maintain your right and everyone else's wrong. The odds go down dramatically at that point. So Jesus says, you're not there to convict them in the sense of a court. You're there to convict their conscience so that they will have reason to consider what you're saying. So the idea here is that you're gonna remove the potential for denial. Denial is when you simply have a different view of the facts than someone else does. You're denying their truth. You're denying their point of view. And we can do that easily, all the time. Hey, I'm sorry, you're just misunderstanding. Hey, I'm sorry, I just don't see it your way. All right, well, denial can't last if it's not true, so we move to the next step of two or three people. And if two or three people come in a team effort to bring the same story to that person and then the person holds to their position despite the team, then it moves from denial to defiance. And friends, defiance, stubborn defiance is incompatible with fellowship in the body of Christ. So if Jesus says, if that small group of two or three can't convince the individual to change, then and only then, it's time to go public. And by going public, he says you take it to the church. Now how would that actually look? Well, thankfully we've never had to do that here. I'm hoping we never will, but... I imagine what it would mean is there'd be some moment in a public setting in which we have to talk about somebody's particular sin. And it's a very, very difficult thing to do. And we can all imagine how hard that must be, right? Not only for the individual, certainly, but hard for everyone. Who wants to hear that? No one's gonna take any joy in that. Now think about this for a minute, because at this point, as we're considering that option and how dramatic that is, I want you to look where it falls, though, in the process. How long has this process now been going on in a completely private way? such that at most two or three people in the entire church have been discussing it or know about it, and only for the benefit of that individual. What that should tell you is how much the Lord wants us to protect the honor of each person in this body. Honor being this best opportunity for them to return into the fold without a lasting stigma. That should be our heart. That if they do what we're asking them to do, there's no lasting penalty for them. And it took us two steps, and I would argue maybe months of time in the process, to get to the point where finally those two or three said, friends, I don't think we have any option anymore with this person. If we love them and want the best for them, we're going to have to go to step three. That's how far this process went before anyone else had to know about it. In my experience, unfortunately, we tend to jump these steps too quickly. And if, if, if we, the worst case is the, the whole thing starts public and never gets to the point of private or stays private. But in other cases, it might start private, but very quickly it suddenly becomes hallway discussion. And when you do that, you just stop the process altogether. You make it impossible to treat the person properly. All right, so when we go public, what's the goal? 
Well, let me say what it's not. If we ever got to a point in this church or, or whenever it happens in a church that somebody has to stand up and say, you know, Susie Q, Joe Smith, whoever it is, we've got these people out there. Um, we've talked to them. We've gone through the process. We've told them. They haven't listened. They haven't listened. And we're now telling you. What's the point in that? Well, the thing it's not about is re-adjudicating the facts. This is not a trial in the front of court of public opinion. It's not as though we're asking the church to take a second look at everything with us and decide for themselves whether or not they agree with what's going on. That is not the point. At the point that it's being made public, the facts are clear. Otherwise, we wouldn't be public. The issue at that point is to bring awareness of the person's defiance to everyone in the body so that that person has nowhere to hide. That's the point. The point is, everywhere they go in that fellowship, everyone they talk to, everywhere they serve, everywhere they fellowship, they'll find nothing but people who love them saying, hey, by the way, Susie Q, when are you gonna deal with that sin I heard about? And they just have a constant, never-ending reminder that they have an issue that we want them to address because it's for their benefit. No more pretending everything's okay. No more hiding behind secret sin. No more hoping it goes away. Everywhere you go, people know, and they want you to deal with it. Now, if you deal with it, all's well. But as you know, having gone public at that point, the person does have that history now that's public, and it's a shame that it had to happen. But let me tell you, in eternity, it will be better for that person at their judgment with Jesus that they turned in the end, though it had some stigma attached to it, than if they never turn. So yes, it's kind of the last-ditch effort, and it is a big step, but it's in their benefit in the long run if, they, if they're going to be moved by it. You just hope you don't have to get to that point. Jesus says, if that doesn't work, and you know there is that potential, if someone's gone that far through the process, the odds are they're probably going to be stubborn enough to go the rest of the way too. If they just refuse everyone's input, and if they're still around at that point, then we make them as Gentiles or tax collectors, which is a bit of a euphemism, a pejorative one in Jesus' day. A Jew would have nothing to do with either of those two groups of people. A Jew would have nothing to do with Gentiles, and a tax collector was a Jew who had started serving the Romans and taking money from fellow Jews, which made that person a pariah to the rest of the Jewish people. So when he says Gentile or tax collector, what he means is do for them what we do to Gentiles and tax collectors back in Jewish culture, which would include you didn't eat with one person like that. Jews didn't eat with Gentiles. They didn't eat with tax collectors. You don't talk to them. You don't fellowship with them. Uh, You didn't invite them into your homes. There was literally no contact. That's the standard he puts to the church. You ostracize them. This is where the idea of excommunication comes from. The idea of not communicating with that person anymore. It's a last resort. It's literally an attempt to save them from a bad judgment with Jesus by denying them the opportunity to fellowship with the body. You do not give them any comfort. You don't give them any sympathy. It is peer pressure, yes, but it's the kind of peer pressure that's good and with the hopeful intent that it eventually makes a point, that takes that hard heart, softens it enough that they'd repent. I don't know if you've ever seen this done in a church. I have not been in a church where I've seen it happening, but I've known of people who've told me of what happened in their church and how a church reached the point of this. But I'll tell you why it's not common. Probably very few of you have seen this, my guess is. And if I'm right, it would be because of the nature of the days we live in. In Jesus' day, there was the church of Colossae. There was the church of Ephesus. You know, there was the church of Thessalonica. What, in other words, there was a city, a town, and a church. And they may have met in little pockets and homes and the like, but they were under a common leadership. They were a common body. So if you ran afoul of that group and you were put out of fellowship, you didn't have the second church of Thessalonica. 
You didn't have the, the other you know, startup down the street. It was all one body. And so the, fee, the, the effect of it was far greater. If you were kicked out of that church, you had no other church. And it would become an issue of wandering as a lone Christian in a tough situation and no one to fellowship with. And that's a significant loss. And it would put pressure on the person. In our day and age, of course, we have churches on every corner. I mean, for crying out loud, we got two churches in this building. So, which is not a problem. I'm not saying it shouldn't be that way necessarily. What I'm saying, though, is you can misuse that fact. You, uh, an individual can take advantage of that in a negative way and avoid discipline as a result through it. And in my experience, we never get through the three steps of Matthew 18 because no one stays around past step one. You know, at the first suggestion, you're doing something wrong and you might have to be held accountable to it. Well, see ya. I'm going to go down to this other church that doesn't know me and won't do this to me. You know, in the end, this process is for the good of the individual. It's not to make us all feel like we're in control of everybody, right? It's not, it's not for the corporate good per se. It's for the good of the individual ultimately because a sheep that continues to wander, that is to live in active disobedience to Christ without consequence, that's a big problem for that person sooner or later. If not in this life, at their judgment. Those of you who've been here for a while, you know when I say judgment, I don't mean for the sake of whether they go to heaven or not. If you're a believer, you're going to heaven, period. What we're talking about, though, is what happens when you get there. That is, when you stand before Christ for your judgment, when, a, when awards, rewards for your service are assigned, there is real risk if you go into that moment not having served Jesus to your best or to have lived in willful sin throughout your life. Hebrews says this, Hebrews ten twenty six. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That is, there's no do-over. He says, but instead, a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Well, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, he's not talking about going to hell. He's talking about the judgment fire of the judgment seat that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 3 when he says, the one who comes there with nothing to show for their life in service will come through as through fire. They will be saved, but their lack of works will be burned up, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. That's what this guy's talking about too. So when you hear him say it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God, you need to understand it in its proper context. He's saying it is a bad day to show up arrogantly, disregarding the commands of Jesus to those he has saved. He says the Lord will judge his people there. You you heard me say that. Not the Lord will judge unbelievers. He says the Lord will judge his people. And we need to take our walk with Jesus seriously enough that we are concerned for ourselves and for anyone else who disregards the obligations they have in a covenant with Jesus to live obediently to his word. And just because that penalty does not include hell, and thankfully so, otherwise none of us would have any hope, that does not mean it's not a serious thing. So our modern lifestyle of living in churches that are all over the city and moving between them freely is not a problem in itself, but it can be a problem if it becomes an opportunity for someone to avoid the discipline that the Lord is trying to bring them. And running away 
when you're confronted over your sin in a matter of discipline, should not turn, that is to say, your submission to the authority of the church under those circumstances should not turn on whether or not they have their facts right. Hear me on this because this is how it usually runs. In my experience, it usually comes down to someone who says, well, I would submit to you if you had the facts right. I would be willing to agree with you and do what you're asking if it weren't for the fact that you're completely wrong about me. (laughs) Who willfully sins and doesn't think they're right? You, You know what I'm saying? Who doesn't have an excuse in their head? Running away when you're confronted over your sin is never a pathway to greater spiritual maturity. Never. You know, it didn't work for King Saul. Didn't work for Jonah. It's not gonna work for us. Now, on the other hand, the value of sticking around when you're under that kind of scrutiny is immeasurable. And that value does not turn on whether you're right. I mean, think about it this way. Let's say you're 100% right on the facts and somebody has completely misjudged you. What should you do? Well, you're still expected to submit. You're still expected to repent, that is, to confess to agree with their perspective and move to where they're asking you to go. Now, I'm assuming for a moment they're not making unbiblical, unreasonable demands. They're not asking you to sin in what you do. They're asking you to stop sinning, all right? And if you submit to that, in the long run, you will be better off spiritually for having submitted, even though you were right, if that's the case. You'd be better off in the long run still submitting. Do you know why? Because the purpose of this whole process and the purpose of submission generally is not to determine right and wrong. If you get too wrapped up in trying to figure out who's right and who's wrong, you will never submit to anyone ever because you know what? You're always right. Right? We know people like that. They're always right. Doesn't matter how you come at them. They're always right. That's why they're never submitting. Here's the thing about submission, friends. If you only submit when somebody agrees with what you want, that's not called submission. It's called agreement. When you only submit with someone because they're doing what you would already have done on your own, It's not submission. Do you know how you find out if you truly have a submitted heart? When you do what someone else wants and it's not what you want. That's when it's submission. You know, in marriage marriage counseling, you know, eventually you run into the issue of, well, the Bible says the wife is to submit, blah, blah. And, you know, we all have the feelings around that of, oh, that seems unfair. What if, Pastor Steve, my husband's an idiot. Why should I submit to him? He's always wrong. That's what submission is. Find a husband that's not an idiot and then we'll talk. Submission is, by definition, doing what the other person wants despite your own opinion. That's what submission is. I know a lot of people who are, quote, in submission, it's just because no one's ever challenged them yet. So when you submit in a set of circumstances in which they say you're wrong and you believe you're right, you gain more spiritual maturity in allowing that process to play out than you do if you quit, take your ball, go home, and sit at home alone saying, I was right. Yeah, sometimes the Lord exposes our sin to other people so that they will call us into account and so that we will repent and we will get back on the straight and narrow, yes. But here's what you need to remember. Sometimes the Lord causes false accusations to come against us so that we will learn even more how to be humble and submit. Because submitting when you know you're wrong, it takes a little bit of of humility, yeah. But submitting when you know you're not wrong, that takes a lot of humility, And if you want to know what it's like to do that, just walk in Jesus' footsteps because he was 100% right and he submitted to death on the cross. If he can do it and he did it for the eternal good of all creation, you can do it for your own spiritual benefit.
So that's the value of not running away, that the Lord is going to use it one way or another to humble us and grow us. And by the way, you're also setting an example for others when you do the right thing in that regard. So here's what we should be thinking as we come out of Matthew 18 today. If someone has the courage and the love for us enough to come to us privately and, cons- and talk to us about our sin, do not look at that person in, with a negative stance. Accept them for who they're trying to be. Receive it with an open heart and acknowledge that this person cared enough about you that they went to that moment. And I'm sure uh, if they did, they probably did it with a lot of trepidation and they're nervous as all can be because they're not sure what you're gonna do. You need to think about them for just a moment as well. And then secondly, hear them out. Don't run away. Don't, don't be defensive. Try to understand if the Lord's using this process in some way to your benefit. If you disagree, explain yourself. Have a conversation. Don't be afraid to talk about the facts. But at the end of the day, if you feel the Lord pulling you into a process in which you, know, you don't want to go to step three, submit early. It's to your benefit, whether you're right or not whether you're right or not. That is, if you can't win them over, submit. Remember, the writer of Hebrews says, discipline in the moment may not seem joyful but sorrowful, and yet to those who have been trained by it afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And then lastly, as we finish today, Jesus ends by saying he's so serious about restoring lost sheep through this style of process. He tells his disciples that as they apply this process, they can be confident that they represent Jesus' own judgments on earth. He says in verse 18 that whatever you bind or loose on earth is being bound or loosed in heaven. The words bind and loose are judicial terms from Jesus' day. To bind means to convict. To loose means to acquit. And so what he's saying is, as you go about the work of applying this process, imperfectly as we will, imperfectly as human beings naturally will do it, nonetheless, what you bind, what you convict, what you acquit, whatever, will have been accepted as a decision from heaven. So in other words, you cannot look to someone and say, well, Jesus doesn't know, knows I didn't do this, and Jesus would acquit me, and because you're doing not what Jesus, I'm going to listen to Jesus and not you. Jesus is telling you right now, listen to your leaders. He's saying, it's not going to turn, your salvation doesn't turn on this anyway. Your eternal rewards are not in jeopardy because of someone else's decision, but they do turn on what you do. So... Submit, agree with them to the extent necessary to make sure that you have a humble heart. Let the Lord sort this all out later. Know that whatever comes from that process, Jesus in heaven is saying, this process now is is one I respect. I will back you up, leadership, in what you're trying to do. If it's done with the right heart, it's done with sincerity, if it's done in love, Jesus is behind it. Whether you're right or not doesn't change it. So every Christian is to follow the rules that Jesus has asked here in how we address wandering sheep. And apostolic rule started the process, it continues today. I would say this to you also, if you've ever been mistreated under this process at some point in the past, somebody tried to bring you under discipline, didn't do it privately, didn't do it in a loving way, and it's produced in you a a lasting hurt, I acknowledge that, I mean, it's it's not what Jesus wanted for you. Forgive those people if you can, and I, I encourage you to do it, because you know, hurt is a common human experience as a result of the sin we all share, and Jesus took care of that on the cross, and if he can forgive you, I would ask you to forgive others for having done what they've done. And if you ever get mistreated in this church, well, forgive us for it and tell me about it. Let me help make it better if we can. If you feel like somebody you know in this church needs to see this process, 
Well, I invite you to pray about how to approach them and do it in a private way and loving way and see what comes of it. Give it time. Be patient. I don't want the teaching to start a process of busybodiness and you know, everyone inspecting everybody else's lives to the degree that suddenly what was a nice community of loving Christians becomes a community of, of uh, uh, critique and judgment and the like. That's not the intent here, obviously. Um, just use your best judgment and be loving of people and I think it'll work out just fine. Jesus gave us this process for a reason. Um, there is a time coming in the next passage which we'll study after Christmas in which Jesus deals with what is the consequence of this that is, there's another step of this. And what is that consequence? Well, whether you take somebody through this process or not, or whether you've been taken through this process or not, what does it mean for that relationship? And I feel like there's always that in the back of your mind. If you see someone sinning, you think, I should talk to them. Jesus said I should talk to them. And then you say, yeah, but if I do that, they're gonna hate me. And I like them. And I think they like me, and I don't wanna see that change. Well, the next passage is the corollary to this process so that we would not worry about that and that it wouldn't be an impediment. And of course the next passage is if you see your brother sinning, forgive him and if he sins seven times, forgive him seven times. That's where we're going and more around that. If you take this teaching and you divorce it from the next teaching, it becomes a recipe for, for being, a judgment, being judgmental. If you take the second teaching without this teaching, it becomes an opportunity for liberal, permissive, licentious culture where everyone can do whatever they want, we just have to forgive them without any consequence. You can't have one without the other and have good order, all right? Let's leave it there. I've given you a lot to think about for a week. If anybody sets up a private meeting with me this week, I'm not available. (laughs) Just kidding. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, Father, in light of what we've learned today, I ask for grace your grace to us and our grace to one another, uh, an unmerited favor, a willingness to, to go easy on one another, looking past the momentary slights uh, of day to day and not making mountains out of molehills in the lives of people around us, Father. Just being ready to accept each other, knowing we, none of us are perfect yet. And then coupled with that, Father, enough love for one another in our grace that we are willing to step into someone's life in a kind and private way when necessary to help them. And help us find a balance in that. The scriptures tell us what to do, but they don't tell us, Father, when to do it. So I pray you would show us that in the moments that matter most. And let it be to your glory in all that comes out of it. We thank you, Father, for the instructions. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.